And good morning, Gary. <laughs> and good evening, Jonathan. And welcome and good and evening, hello. Eliza. Hello, we have, we have Gary and Jonathan. Welcome to the multi-tracked Cooge Street podcast, Locust podcast, everything else podcast on the Nebula Awards, which finished just minutes ago. How was it, Liza? Was it exciting to be in the room? It was, well, it was a very nice room. It was a very nice room. It was interesting. The lighting was strange and it was, the food was good. Wow. I mean, all those sort of banquet things went just fine. And, and uh, I actually had no complaints on that end. Excellent. No complaints. And it wasn't. It didn't take terribly long. You you watched it, right? Wait, yeah, did did you, Gary? I was watching it. I thought Michael Swanwick did a wonderful job. Yeah. He did. It wasn't overly lengthy. and. No. I mean, I think this is the second time they've televised it, which I think is a great innovation, not the least because I'm actually a paid Nebula affiliate member. Um, and it's like the only thing I get for, for my membership, so I'm really happy to get something. Yeah. No, it was good. I actually have been to probably too many award ceremonies and it was a nice one so and actually i thought uh, did, did you start at the beginning gary did you hear michael dearda talking i heard the end of michael dearda's uh, talk it was uh, an interesting I talk i mean the he's best really hmm. I, I really like him a lot liza well liza you and i interviewed him uh what a year ago uh, oh right? yeah i think and so ReaderCon. at ReaderCon, yeah and for somebody who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning mainstream critic. He really knows science fiction well. It was interesting that uh, that his the, the, the thesis of his uh, pre-dinner or pre-awards uh, talk was basically that the science fiction field needs to remember its past a bit more, which yeah. is sort of an interesting conversation sort of to have uh, at this set of awards at this time in the evolution of the field, particularly since this ballad as a whole had been applauded for being something of a generational change ballad, I think. Right. Okay. Well, I think, you know, it's funny, too. Oops, sorry. Go ahead, Gary. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's funny, too, because often we're criticized for sort of doing too much navel-gazing and too much looking at past masters. But I think that there is a bit of a sea change happening, and there are a lot of new writers of note, and people are, are now a little more nervous about saying, hey, don't forget. <laughs> don't forget where we all came from, you know, so. Which is good. Well, we some Twitter comments complaining that this was a chance to give awards to all new people and yet uh, it, it rewarded familiar names. Uh, on the other hand, the number of new people that were on the ballot I thought was impressive. Yeah, and I think the thing we found from watching awards is that it takes a while for people to become known enough because it's never simply just a matter of recognizing excellence, rather factors always. And so it takes a while for that to happen. So I think it's a, it's a nice balance. I mean, one something which you pointed out, Liza, just immediately before we started talking, though, and it does sort of talk to remembering the past, is that for some reason this year, and someone I'm sure will tell us what it is in comments and we can explain it, uh, there was no Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master Award presented this year. Right, and I'm looking at the list, and the last time, we said no one was listed in 2002. Yeah. And then before that, it was 92. Mm. Um, but it's and it hasn't, so it hasn't been every year. Yeah. But they did that. It didn't even come up, which is sort of a funny thing. So maybe they have some. Well, well nomination. It says what nominations are made by the president. Yes. Well, the thing that I find interesting then, and it talks to this directly, and I don't know if there's a link, is I don't know that I'd heard of the first award of the, well, I think the second actual nebula of the evening, which was the Solstice Award, 
which is kind of grandmaster-ish, you know, because it's you know, for services to the field, I believe it is. Right. Uh, and, and yep. The other award which was missing was the Emeritus Award, which I've always been in opposition to. So, in fact, I think, yep. I think it's egregious to tell somebody to, that they've retired <laughs> when they don't think they have. Oh, I will say this. If, if the Solstice Award... Uh, and I've just missed it because it's entirely possible I could have. If the Solstice Award is basically the Grandmaster Award now, the two people who received it no. are very it's worthy just, winners. It's a separate. It's a separate thing because we list, last year we listed the Grandmaster and the Solstice. Okay. Because uh, so. I mean, this year it was what Michael Whalen and James Tiptree. Yeah. Uh, who are very, very, very worthy winners. Uh, before we sort of talk about anything about the ballot in detail. Since you were sitting there and uh, you had a chance to sort of think, what what is your what did you sort of pick up as the feeling to the overall results at the awards? Was there a good feeling about them? Did you think or? Well, you know, in the moment, there's all it's always applause and yeah, you know, people being being enthusiastic. I think there were a couple of categories in which there was a bit more enthusiasm when the nominees were announced than mm -hmm. when the winners were, but. Past that, it was really, I mean, in that moment, you can't really say that people were disgruntled or anything yeah. by it. I mean, and the other thing is, if you look, like, Connie was there. Yes. Right? Mm. And, I mean, Nora uh, Jemison was there, Mary was there, and uh, Mary Hobson and Mary Robinette Cole and Jack McDevitt were all there. Mm. But everyone likes to see the winner there. Connie won, yes. and she was there. Rachel Swirsky was there. Eric James Stone was there. Kitch Johnson was there. So those were all... Mm. I mean, no one is going to sound disappointed when the winner walks up to the table. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah. you, you, not, not unless you're sitting at the table listening as they talk to each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just very quickly. I mean, the Andre Norton Award went to I Shall Wear Midnight by Terry Pratchett. Uh, now there's what eight young adult novels up there. There's a uh, I've you know I've read the novel. I liked it a great deal, so I'm quite happy. Um, I don't know whether there was anything else that was seen as being a great um, competitor for that award. Uh, I actually had wondered if perhaps Paolo Bacigalupi might have followed right. up last year's Nebula and picked up for Shipbreaker, but that wasn't to but, be. But and I honestly, Holly's book was very Holly Black's White yeah. Cat was a very good book. Yes, and Susan Collins' Mockingjay certainly. Mm. Got plenty of attention, um, and then Scott Westfeld's always popular. The others I'm not as familiar with, but yeah. um, I wouldn't have been surprised if Paolo had taken it, or even Suzanne Collins. And the other, you know, Holly or Scott might have been a bit more of a surprise just because they're not on the award track right now. You know, they're not yeah. in the, you know, Paolo's on a streak. <laughs> you <laughs> know, so. doing the second book in the series. Uh, which is always difficult. I thought yeah. that was one of the strongest categories we had, though, from, yeah. from what I know. About it. The question that comes to me is, with, with Terry winning that award, which I agree was a much-deserved award, uh, is there a sense of, uh, and I've seen this, I've, I've wondered about this, this before, is there a sense of rewarding the community rather than an outs a quote-unquote un quote, outsider like Suzanne Collins? Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to say. I mean, Terry's certainly not, you know, well within the community and has always bonded very closely with the community. Um, and certainly, I mean, Paolo, Holly, 
um, and Scott are regular attendees at conventions and all part of that kind of thing. So hard, hard to know for sure. And also, I mean, it is after all, well, it's a, it's a, it's a popular vote award, uh, but none of these people or people I would say are particularly active at SF, in, in SFWA all the time. So uh, it's an interesting category. I think they did really, really well with it. The next category, the Ray Bradbury Award, is one that I am historically neutral about. And <laughs> I just don't have much feeling for it. It's like I, I, I love all the story awards, and but both so the same with the Hugos. When you get to the dr- Dramatic Presentation Awards, I'm like, yay, good for Definitively you. Definitively ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this Ray Brad- Bradbury Award, which actually was highlighted by you know James Morrow uh, alluding to um, the Ray Bradbury video that's up for the Hugo. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd not heard Jim, you know, Jim Morrow's singing voice before, and that yeah, was interesting. He, interesting. He, he should not quit his day job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's uh, the award ended up going to Inception, which I guess at least well, is a science fiction film. It's a science fiction film. I mean, my sense of it, I think, is the same as yours. And, and, and Liza and you and I have talked about this also. And Charles and I used to talk about this. You're giving an award to somebody who has not got a chance in hell of showing up for it, and probably barely aware that is barely aware that they're nominated for it. I mean, I didn't, didn't Steven Spielberg win a Hugo once or something? Uh, and I thought, what it reminded me of is I used to belong to the Popular Culture Association, which would give a Popular Culture Achievement Award. And one year they gave it to Mary Tyler Moore when her TV yeah. series was popular. And of course she didn't show up. And the next year they gave it to somebody very interesting, a Hollywood cinematographer named Haskell Wexler, and, and he didn't show up. And finally they started checking out who's going to show up and whoever shows up gets the award. <laughs> and perfectly reasonable too, I say. I can't think of any yeah. other award that would do such a reasonable thing, but gosh, that's good. <laughs> uh, um, so anyway, uh, that, that takes us up, well, let's say Inception 1, I don't, do you have any other comments about the award? Um, yeah, yay for Inception-y oh. people. Yay, Inception. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, fine. And short story. Now, short story is interesting, if only because it was a tie. And we haven't had a tie. Well, we had a tie a few years ago for novel. So they do come up with nebulas every now and again. But they, and, didn't announce, they didn't announce that it was a tie. Yeah. They announced Kidge is winning. Yeah. And then they said, oh, and we, there's more. There's, well, there's two <laughs> things was, about, Yeah. Usually they'll say it's a tie and they'll announce both winners and then they'll say you come up and, yeah. Well, I suspect that was Gordon Van Gelder who presented it, playing for, for a little bit of drama, but also letting uh, Kids Johnson, who won for Pony, Ponies, a story published on Tor.com, to just have that space because the other recipient wasn't in the room, and so it's not an unreasonable thing to do, you know, because it went to the honestly you can only describe him as the great Harlan Ellison for his sh- short story How, How Interesting a Tiny Man, which was appeared in uh, Realms of Fantasy. Uh, and it's one of the and it's one of the few stories that he's written in the last sort of ten years or so. So that was an interesting outcome. Absolutely. Well, it, it it was it was interestingly presented, and I, you know, Harlan of course has been sort of not up to traveling much it seems these days, but hoping that we'll see him around. Well, yes, and of course this is one of the categories I think that got a lot of people excited because there were a lot of newer and frankly non. U.S.-based, whatever, writers in there, because you had Vilar Kaftan and Amal Al-Motar and Jennifer Pelland and Felicity Shoulders. So they're newer writers that start, you know, the earlier stage in their career. Uh, so to see a balance in the tie as well, I mean, because Kidge, while she's been writing for quite a long time, really only seems to have achieved a lot of prominence in the last 
say three, four years. But she's winning a lot of awards. The yeah, last she is. Three years. Yeah, she is. A lot. Of, <laughs> the science fiction. The first award she received, by the way, was the Crawford Award at the, the International Conference for a oh. fantasy novel. You just always bring I, that thing up, Gary. Neener, neener, <laughs> neener. I had a Crawford Award. I, I, I gave her the first. Uh, but to be honest, the, the Harlan Ellison story is, is not one of the great Harlan Ellison stories. Uh, and I wonder to what extent the membership, uh, the changing membership of SFWA over the years, now has a huge number of members who are thinking, I never got a chance to vote for one of Harlan's great stories for the, for, for the Nebulas. And, and here's, here's the first Harlan story I've had a chance to vote for. It could be. I mean, it's very hard to know. I mean, he's won the Nebula for short story. And I will admit, immediately admit that I am not brilliant and do not have a great memory. What I'm doing is I am raiding Mark Kelly's Locus Awards database for this information. He won the Have Nebula stopped, for... Sorry? Stop fooling people that weeks ago. So. <laughs> he, he, was, he, was, he was made Grandmaster at the Nebulas in Tempe. He was. 2005, mm -hmm. maybe? Yes. And was, right. and was probably typically colorful about doing so. Uh, yes. But the previous stories he, he won for what were Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man, um, which was quite a good story, The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World, and one of the other ones. What, oh, yes, A Boy and His Dog. Three quite well-known stories. Um, so, yes. Still being widely read 40 years later. And have you have you happened to read How Interesting a Tiny Man, Liza or Gary? I, I have not actually read that. I, did I read have it because... an issue on my desk. <laughs> Well, Realms of Fantasy started sending me copies, uh, which is very nice of them, mm -hmm. and I appreciate it. And I happened to get the copy that that was in, and I thought exactly everything that everybody else must have thought. Wow, a Harlan story. We haven't seen one in a long time. And, well, it was a Harlan story. Uh, yeah. But when you think of a boy and his dog, or you think of uh, the beast that shouted love, or you think of I have no mouth and I must scream, or uh, repent Harlequin, that's uh, no, not one of those stories. I, I think Harlan knows it's not one of those stories. Well... I, I, what I what was nice for me was by sheerest chance, and I'm not going to tell you particularly why, but by sheerest chance, I had just downloaded the Kindle edition of The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World yesterday, and read Neil Gaiman's introduction, and it really does remind you why, I at least, or reminded me why I loved Harlan short stories, particularly from the 70s and 80s, so that was really good. We then went on to the no novelette, and this is interesting. And it's interesting, uh, this ballot's an interesting one, because it's the first time in quite a number of years where you've had a couple of stories from Analog on the ballot. Um, and, in fact, an Analog story won. That Leviathan Whom Thou Hast Made by Eric James Stone won. It's the first story from Analog to win a Nebula since 2001, and only the third in a quarter century to win a, 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 a Nebula. So that's, it's quite a big deal for the magazine. They've also got a couple of stories on the Hugo ballot. So you'd have to say that readers, at least, are saying they're having a bit of a renaissance. Hey, uh, you guys are, just so you know, you guys are starting to get a little choppy for me. I don't know okay. if my internet is getting spotty. But if I drop out, that's... Okay. Well, we'll try and bear with it. and we'll, we'll hit. We'll... So far, we can hear you fine. You're, you've been great. So, and we will perhaps speed this up a little bit. I, I will say that I thought the novelette category this year was quite strong. And I was it particularly was. fond of Chris Barzak's story. That's a personal prejudice. But mm -hmm. uh, have to applaud Analog for having done so well. I think it's a really good thing for them. Did you have and a favorite I, uh, on that, that 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 didn't win or me? 
if Other I can, than Chris Barzak, if, was it if, if I was going to give, if if I were giving out the award, I would have given it to Chris Barzak or Jim Kelly, just based on my own taste. But that's just yeah. my taste, you know. And obviously, I'm not a writer. I'm not a member of uh, SFWA, and they have a different perspective they bring to it. So, right. Although I, I think I would share that prejudice. I mean, I have to. We always have to keep in mind that Chris and and, and Jim are friends, and they're mm. friends of all three of them. Uh, and uh, the, I guess the, the the generational thing seems to come into play here as well. And I've not read the uh, the Eric Stone story, so I, I can't compare it to the other two. Uh, but there is a sense that, uh, uh, you know, Jim Kelly is kind of the, in one sense, he's part of the old line literary humanist tradition, him and Kessel and a few others. Um, Chris Barzak is clearly uh, a member of the newer uh, generation. And Stone, it seems to me, I don't know, might be a compromise between those traditions. Who knows? I mean, the thing about these ob observations that we make is that um, we, we don't really know the collective view of, of SFWA. And of course, the other thing that I, I, it occurred to me to say before we started was, we'll only really know what these results mean in 10 or 20 years time. Because that's that's what you see when you look at awards. You know, these things are great today. And you, you, congratulations to all the winners, most sincerely. But you'll only know that far away. It's when you can look back, as we were doing in a podcast a few weeks ago, Gary, and you see what had mm -hmm. happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, which we did with the Locust Awards, because of course, Liza... The Locust Awards this year in Seattle, if I understand it correctly, are the 40th anniversary Locust Awards. So there. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> 1971 <laughs> to 2011. Absolutely. But I know you're all over there. I've been a little <laughs> busy getting things ready, but that's everything. No, yeah, there are things. The thing about award ceremonies is people think about, okay, uh, it's wonderful to present them, but Liza has to worry about organizing lunches. And things. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more on the organize. I have to say, and I can't make any promises that it'll be there, but I did get a call from Neil Gaiman's person at Harper who said that he's going to try and fly in. Oh, that's magic. So, so that he can go to the Locust Wars and hopefully present to Harlan, who's mm -hmm. being inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. So that's kind of exciting for it. It because is. And, and actually, can I, can I say then, uh, just to interject with a commercial announcement, tickets, I believe, are available to the Locust Awards, are they not? <laughs> they are. And, actually, and if you were to buy a ticket, it might be one of the few chances you'll get to see Harlan Ellison live on stage again, and with Neil Gaiman, and possibly with that boring person who keeps coming to Locust Awards. No good, boring, dull, dull. Tony Willis, that one. Uh, that one, oh yeah. No but, sense of humor at all, that one. Sounds like a good weekend. Right. No, well, let me come back. It will be a good weekend, and Liza, you and I need to talk about this sometime really soon. Mm -hmm. um, but to go back to your comment about whether it makes a difference 40 years later, my guess is do these stories necessarily survive for 40 years is one way of asking that question. Mm -hmm. The other way of asking that question, when you have a writer like Kids Johnson, do these awards give her enough of an impetus that a career subsequently derives from that and the career we will remember 40 years from now. Could be so. Could be so. I mean, I, as somebody who has to pick a lot of books, like I look at a lot of things that come in for review, and I do my filtering before they go on to Jonathan, who then assigns, picks more, does more choosing and assigns reviewers and does all that. But if I see award-winning on something, uh, especially on an author that I haven't, heard of before mm. it does slow it slows the the galley's passage across my desk 
what I mean? Like there, like if I see that, I go, oh, what award did they win? And then maybe I slow down and I read because it's you know there's so many books, there are so many books, and people say you know what does winning an award get you? Is it any? Is there any use to having all these award ceremonies? But from the um, I've never heard of you, and I just got your arc, and in the publicity letter it said you won an award. That slows me down. Yeah. So maybe not for someone like Kids Johnson, who's already familiar in the field, but if she wanted to expand out of the field, it probably would help her. Yeah. I don't. Well, one know. good, one I don't good think, example of this year's awards might be Rachel Swirsky. Well, it's just like very, if I can, before we move on to Rachel, just quickly, I would point oh. out that Eric James Stone is, because I just had a look because I'm looking things up, uh, <laughs> another graduate of the um, L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. So it just goes to show me that particular uh, you know, new, writer, new writer project has recognized a lot of people on the, you know, who, who've gone on to some success. So just interesting to point that out. And now, and yes. The writer to the future graduate as well. Who's brilliant. So, yeah. Um, the next category has my favorite winner in the whole set of awards, my personal favorite. I think, I mean, unlike the pair of you, I read a lot of short fiction last year. I mean, like, yes. not, not a little lot. I read I read the lot lot with, with, with the big boy boots on, lots and lots. Uh-huh. And I thought that last year was, frankly, a much stronger year for novellas than for novelettes or short stories whilst it was a good year overall it was a great year for novellas and several of my favorites made the ballot and one of my very favorites was the winner which was the lady who plucked red flowers beneath the queen's window by rachel swirsky which i believe will be the key story in her her first short story collection that's coming out next year and i was just delighted i think it's a great story um i was really pleased to see it pick up the award well i think i think there are a lot more authors who are feeling very comfortable at the novella length. You know, I've heard from several people this weekend about how novella is the perfect length, that it's, you know, enough to really ex- explore an idea and develop a plot line and have some characters and do these things, but you don't have to, mm. you don't have to go the full length of a novel and that the novel in the, at the end is really the commercial result of a, but that's what i've been hearing is everyone's like the novella is really the perfect size yes and the novel that's the perfect sort of artist from the artistic end that's the perfect size but from the reader side from the commercial how do you please the reader side that it's the novel and so you you know expand your novella into novel length and then you make some money but it's an interesting <laughs> thought and i keep well, hearing it you raise exactly the right question there, which is, and, and that argument has been made for a long time. Damon Knight made the argument. There was a collection by Grof Conklin probably 60 years ago, uh, six great science fiction novellas. And he said exactly what you just said, Liza. The question right. these days, of course, are how do you monetize a novella? Well, well, well I, I, done a nice job with that. They very much have, and they, they dominate the category. Yes, uh, and, and, and And there's at least a couple of very well monetized, I know, from... Uh, personal you know, information, uh, very well monetized novellas, and it's great because what what I used to hear all the time, and I still hear it as an old kind of saw, is that novellas are really hard to sell. You know, there's not much of a market for them, and yet I don't know how you two feel, but I see them everywhere now. I mean, there are small presses doing little chat booky versions of them or whatever else. They're showing up online. They're showing so so they're not hard to find, and it's but nice. They're hard to- to- 
find for a commercial reader who's going to Barnes and Noble or yeah. looking on Amazon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. You have to either know where to find your genre online, yeah. or you need to go to a little bookseller that happens to pick up these specialty books. Or they did innovate and create this thing called a year's best, and they collect some of them. <laughs> You've heard of those. I've heard of those. Do, yeah, but again, even there, you and I, Jonathan, we've talked about this. Mm. The um, the number of words you have to play with has some effect on the number of novellas you can include. Oh, sure, sure. And not just, the, just that. I mean, the combination of... Uh, the number of words you have and the rights you can get. I mean, I'll be frank. I would have put uh, Troika by Alistair Reynolds, which is up for the Hugo, in my year's best if I could have. It just wasn't contractually available to me. Um, and I'm sure that happens in other cases. You know, it's not uncommon. And with some of these really big high bandwidth anthologies where people are paid lots and lots and lots and lots of money, or in some of the cases of books where there, you know, there's been a lot of money paid for a novella, they're tied down by rights and you just can't reprint them. <laughs> but and yeah, that means it's extra nice to see them actually get recognized. And in the case of the lady who plucked red flowers, I mean, first of all, it's the one that's published, it's the only one that's published online, actually, mm. which is interesting. Uh, it's also the only unabashed fantasy to win this year. Everything else that's won is a science fiction story, which was that's I, I true, think, but it's she, interesting. She does do an interesting time travel thing in that, or at least time lapse thing in it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It feels science fictional when you get to that part of the story. I, yeah, yeah. Did I hear a cat? That was, that was my cat. Was, I'm sorry. It wasn't my cat. <laughs> hey, look, it's. it's I'm, in a, I'm in a hotel room in Washington D.C. <laughs> Is it gonna say if you have a cat? Well, hey, we were talking yesterday with Karen Lord, who was fantastic, and we had a frog chorus through the whole thing. You talked to her yesterday? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. From Barbados, she was wonderful. We heard these yeah. wonderful noises from outside, and there were her frogs in Barbados. I really, she's fabulous. I'm jealous because like, I love chatting with her. Yeah. She's really, really uh, going to be an an excellent addition to the field. Yes. So we had awesome. frog course, we had motorbikes going up and down the street in the background. So it's quite interesting. <laughs> so when we do put that <laughs> podcast up, I hope you prepare with this. This, this is this is a plug for uh, a podcast that actually probably will be on after this one. That she, one of her favorite books was Asimov's The Gods Themselves. Mm. Karen is full of surprises. She's absolutely yes. wonderful. <sighs> now, we should probably just go on and touch base with the final award of the evening, which is what you know George R. R. Martin keeps jocularly referring to as the, the big one, uh, the best novel. I thought that was the Hugo was the big rocket. Was Not, this the, big, the big chunk of Lucite. No, no, just... They still, the, the, by the way, Eliza, they still have nebulas embedded in the Lucite this year. I didn't Absolutely. see them. Yeah. Absolutely. Can I, can I just say, though, that I mean, the, the story apparently was that at one of the awards or whatever, they just used to refer to it as the big one. Uh, have you won the big one? No, I've won the big one. Have you won? That kind of thing. And <laughs> so you know, then could you get the medium-sized one or the small one? That must be the tiny one. Uh, you won the tiny one. Uh, uh, so yeah. anyway, the winner of the big one was somebody with an enormous novel, frankly. It was a very, very big one, which was Connie Willis's Blackout Slash All Clear uh, I think originally written just as all clear, which is this 1,600-page time travel extravaganza. And, I mean, well-loved by the Nebulas, but a very, very popular choice, I think. Well, Connie is a popular choice. Yes. Uh, when you mention the length of it, I'm willing to wager at this point, since it is a single novel and not two volumes, and I've said this many, many times, that this must be the longest novel ever to win a Nebula. Probably. By far. <laughs> can, can I, I, just, yeah? I, I remember speaking with... Her editor, when she turned in the first half, and, and she said uh, she turned in this novel, and it was 1,300 pages, and it was meant to be 
the first half. And she went back to her and said, this can't be the first half of a novel. You can't, you can't turn in 1,300 pages and have it be the first half of a novel. And there was this long discussion, and, and then we ended up with the two volumes. But, <laughs> and, some, and a little bit of trimming, mm. because they were 1,300 pages per. But it pro- uh, it, I will say, in fairness to Connie, it probably doesn't feel like the longest novel ever to win the Nebula. Well, I went, I went sightseeing with her today. She took, She was totally horrified that I was coming to D.C. I'd never been to D.C. before, and I wasn't going to go and look, oh. go to the na- National Mall and see the Vietnam Memorial mm-hmm. and the Lincoln Memorial and the World War II Memorial. And so we went, and she hauled me around. And I have to say, Connie Willis, if you're going to go to historical sites, is the best person to take you around because she tells you everything you ever needed to know know about memorials and she is so she's like full of emotion while she does it she's feeling every second of it and in the middle of all this she said this is the thing that drives me nuts as long as my book was i didn't get to use you know a quarter of this information that i did i did eight years of research i have so much information about world war ii and i didn't get to use a quarter of it and this novel <laughs> in this two vo- like these two huge tomes but it's an interesting uh, I, I, will say, I will say the one criticism I've heard of Blackout All Clear is that perhaps you can see that she is a little bit entranced by the sheer volume of research that she's done and wants right. to communicate it as much as she possibly can which is understandable well I think and she is just dying to impart all of this information that she has accumulated and it's interesting and and she is very good at at transmitting it in a way that makes it entertaining certainly i was trying to convince her that she needs to write history books for high school students because (laughs) it would make history so much more interesting if she wrote it um the one thing i will say and i like the book uh a lot and uh i think the reason i like the book a lot is i had uh Thanks to Connie and, and, and Liza and a whole conspiracy, I was able to read it continuously uh, when the first one came out. And then there's this, the passion never flags in the book. The absolute fascination with this material mm. is, is contagious. And another uh, a novel I can, I can compare it with, which I think the um, – well, okay, shall I get in trouble? Yes, I'll get in trouble. Um, the, the last Dan Simmons novel, Black Hills. Mm. struck me as a novel in which which wears its research on its sleeve in a way that fails to integrate the research with the passion behind the storytelling in the way the Connie's does. Yeah. Okay. And I never, I, I never, so dumb? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Dan Simmons. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Dan Simmons can deal with historical material as well as anybody. Uh, right. Tim Powers can deal with historical material as well as, as well as anybody. But it seems to me that the passion for storytelling has to absorb the historical material and not have the historical material appear as an appendix, essentially, which is in the middle of the text. Right. right. Mm. No, and, and I think that that's – I think it's hard because people get so wrapped up in their own research and they find it so interesting and they know if they could just sit down with you and a bottle of wine – that it would exactly. be totally worth your time for them to tell you all of this stuff, and the, and it's harder to transmit it in text, you know. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I feel for authors who have so much information to absolutely. transmit. I, I think there's something to be said. I think it's I think it's an encouraging sign that science fiction novels can run to that length, uh, and and more or less get away with it. I mean, I read 
what amounts to a, depending on how you look at it, either a 3,000-page Neil Stevenson novel <laughs> or, or four or five Neil Stevenson novels sort of you know, shuffled together. Um, but he was so in love with what he was telling me about the, uh, the Royal Society and Newton and Leibniz and so forth and so forth that my interest never flagged for a minute. And I think uh, that what we're talking about here is merging the skill of writing historical fiction, which I've talked to Cecilia, we've all talked to Cecilia Holland about this, who does this brilliantly, right. mm -hmm. and the skills of writing science fiction. And the fact that people are able to do that now, I think it's a terrific sign. Yeah. It's, it really is. Very much agree. So... But now the rest of the... the I have to say that the rest of the novel nominees had excellent they were i mean they were excellent nominees the titles there were were all sort of worthy titles i and i you know we've brought up the the point about is this a you know a vote for the old guard mm. I, I i don't like that that particular argument for various reasons and not simply because i could be seen as being part of the old guard what I would say is that, well, uh, I guess what I'd say, though, is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good and a young ballot overall. Um, the books all have good pedigrees. Uh, I'm not going to pretend, because I read so much of that short story, that short fiction I was bragging about, that I've read all of the six nominees this year. But Mary Hobson's book, uh, Nora Jemison's book, Mary Cowell's book, um, Nettie Okorafor's books and Jack McDevitt's all have um, great raps on them, and I've got no doubt that I mean McDevitt is probably the the old the other the, the next most senior of the writers who are actually nominated this year, but I would imagine we're going to be reading the other four for and seeing them on ballots for the next twenty years. Absolutely, and in some way this book was an opus for Connie. You know, hmm. this was her the end of eight years of very hard work and and i think that people want to recognize that when it happens you know mm. well in, in a way it's the end of almost four years of very hard work but we go back to firewatch which i think was 1984 or something which is her first novel about for sure her short story about the blitz which yeah. as i recall one maybe a hugo and a nebula that yeah she's well, been absolutely fascinated by the blitz for her entire career Yes. I, I will say somewhat heretically, the book that I'm waiting for is her next one, the um, the Roswell novel that she's working on. <laughs> and I, I'm doing, I, I'm really eager for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I know it will be funny. It's going to be really funny. Right. But the other thing is, the whole Black Hat All Clear thing kind of reminds me a little bit of what Stan Robinson went through with Black uh, with Blue Mars, Red Mars, Green Mars. And if you remember the history of it, he did those three books, then he did Antarctica, which was this wonderful summary of everything that went into that previous thing, conceptually at least, if not you know, practically. And I just wonder if we're going to find that this next book that she does, because she's got this big thing that had dominated her mind so much out of the way, will be particularly exciting and rewarding and terrific. So I'm really eager about that. I'm very curious about it because I remember reading uh, she wrote a short chapbook about her, a nonfiction book about her travels to Roswell and her yeah. visits to UFO museums, and it was utterly uh, hilarious without being mean, yeah. which is one of the things that Connie has a talent for. And I thought there is a there, there's an entire cast of uh, endearing but pathetic characters who are involved in this, <laughs> some of whom are probably still waiting for the world to end this evening, um, and, and those are the characters that she handles just brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, she, she, she can make fun of characters without, ridicule, without ridiculing them, and that's very difficult to bring off in comic writing. Yeah. 
I have to say one thing, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about, who sort of parody Connie's emceeing style and mm-hmm. do all of the things that are sort of in parody of Connie Willis. But Connie, one of the things that Connie does is she never makes, she never really makes fun of anybody in the no, field. No. She makes fun of Gary Busey and Britney Spears and Sarah Palin. But she doesn't. She doesn't make targets of people in the. I mean, no. There, there have been exceptions that were roasts and other things. But in general, mm. like she doesn't pick people in the audience to make targets of. And a lot of people do these parodies, but they're sort of making Connie their target when they do that. But I don't know if they realize that she never really targets anybody mm. she knows. Like, this yeah. is not, these are like celebrity you know, personalities who are not part of our field. Um, but it's very important to her that she doesn't make fun of anyone. In the field. Yes, so, yeah. I think she's very classy well, about it. Uh, she yeah. is. And you and I were both there when, when um, Charles presented Connie with her induction to the Hall of Fame, which is actually one of the most moving moments I've had in the entire science fiction field. I mean, Charles, first of all, really? you don't see Charles emotional very often, and certainly you don't see Connie get emotional. The moment tonight in watching the ceremonies that I thought was the most touching moment was Connie saying, I got this presented to me by Joe Haldeman. Mm. I know. And she just, she looked like, I mean, she was so giddy. She was practically tap dancing up there. You know, she was yeah. so happy. And the, when she said, like, the, the excitement never goes away, like, she really meant it. She yeah. was up there and she was really pleased to have gotten this award, yeah. you know? It means something when it comes from your peers that way. Very much. Well, and it comes from your peers, and when you love the field as much as she does, and she is just passionately in love with all of science fiction, and always has been. Mm. Very that much. Comes across. It comes across with Joe as well, I should say. Yes. Uh, it, came across, it came across with Mike Swanwick's uh, Master of Ceremonies thing, which I thought was extraordinarily gracious and funny mm. and appreciative. Right, and even with Durda... Yep. You know, his I, saying, you know, you really need to go back and you need to read, uh, the, you know, the Mervyn Peaks and the, you know, you need to go back and you need to read these classic books because you need to know from whence we come, you know. So it's a, yeah, yes. it's a good point. Yes. And it's nice to have, especially someone like Durda, who doesn't, you know, we welcome him and he's part of the field, but he doesn't need to do no, that. No. You know, he has his own successes and to have him be that dedicated to it is a nice He has a big boy award. <laughs> he does. <laughs> I, I, I had brunch with Sean Tan the other the other week when he was in town. We sat around for oh, three yeah. and a half hours well, chatting. And, Oscar went very and he, much. Okay. Yeah, and you're going, Yeah, I'm up for the Aurealis Award this week, he goes, and he's going he didn't actually say it, but he's a little smile going, oh, <laughs> got an Oscar, you know, yeah, fine, whatever you need. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Actually, the funny thing was I was talking to someone who shall remain unnamed, and they said that, you know, Sean Tan's up for the Hugo this coming year. That's going to be quite a run for him if he were to win the Hugo. And you're thinking, I guess. He's I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, he's got the Oscar. He's got the Astrid Lindgren. He's got all these other – in fact, he's now got more – he told me and he wasn't being at all egotistical because the awards generally don't go to him. They go to the film company that made The Lost Thing. Oh. Uh, and he said you know, he'll go into the office every now and again because he doesn't actually work with them all the time. And there'll be some new award somewhere in this sort of ranked cabinet of all the awards that The Lost Thing has won. And you're kind of go, oh, what's this one? You know, like, oh, okay, that's nice. 
because it's pretty fabulous though. He's such a yeah. he is such a lovely guy, and he's smart, and he cares about the field, and he cares about mm. people caring about the field, and and he's humble. Yes, you know, he's he's one of those couldn't go to a nicer guy kind of guys. Yeah, you, you know? gotta hate and, that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't even hate him. You'd have to. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> the thing was, uh, the only time I met him was at uh, the World Fantasy in Saratoga, mm. and we were talking for a half hour, and I think, uh, I don't know, Amelia or somebody came up, and, and I had no idea who I was talking to for a half hour. I was thinking, this is this neat, completely self-effacing guy who's just absolutely delighted to talk to me, and then later I figured out, oh, that's Shantan I was talking to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very much. Now, I have to say, because we're going to get towards the end of this fairly soon, this yeah, speaking of... Down there drinking in the lobby, and um, I'm not. You need to go and do that. I know. Sorry, uh, this is really the first of the. I, this is probably the wrong way to put it. The first of the big awards for the year. Really, we've had some yeah. good awards, but this is this is one of the big boy awards, or big per, big person awards. Sorry. Uh, what's next? You're off to the Locus Awards. Is that the next one? Locus in June. Awards well, when, June. When, when, when the Mythics are not one of the big ones and the giant ones, but they're significant. And when when do they uh, get announced? Sorry, sorry, which ones? The Mythopaic Society. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think they're like in the next month or two. I think. I don't know. Okay. I'm just guessing. So I, I guess the big genre-wide awards that don't have uh, narrow definitions on them, I guess the next one will be Locus and then the Hugos. Yeah. And with a little bit of luck, we'll all be together for that. Excellent. Great. Excellent. Which would be nice. Uh, and, I mean, just because I, I, I just am going to allude to it because the first time we've been online. Of course, I won an award last night with Marianne. You did. Really? I did. Marianne and I which, won an award. Which award did you win last night? We won the Aurealis Award for Best you Anthology. Won, yeah. They were announced last night? They were. Congratulations. Uh, you can, I mean, I think I've emailed Liza, I've emailed Locus the, the, the results for all the awards, and I won't go through them now because it's a whole array. But, yeah, I was very pleased to have, I mean, Marianne and I co-edited a book for Nightshade called Wings of Fire, and it won, so it was nice. So, yeah. Congratulations, Jonathan, and congratulations, Marianne. Though she's not here, maybe she'll hear it. She, she's about four months behind on the podcast, so come about September, she'll be very pleased to hear your congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> that, no, but that's really fantastic. Is this, yeah. this is her first anthology? Yeah. Is it her first award? It's it's her first award in the field that, she, that she's been up for, yes. Her first nomination, first anthology, and first win. So it's nice. And, and Marianne, Eliza, you would know this better than I. Marianne was never on, never one of the people who got one of the awards no. that Lucas got back in the day. Yeah. I don't so, think so, no. No. I, 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 okay. Well, congratulations <laughs> to Marianne. Especially. Yes, absolutely. Jonathan, you're, you're, Jonathan, you're just on ballots all over. Ah. Well, actually, it also ended my enormous losing streak for the year, so I'm very happy. So. That's true. We, 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 Eliza, I don't know if you saw this, but I think we have a record for the most lost podcast awards. We will be pushing forward with that. We, we will be working hard to keep lo losing. <laughs> and anyway, on that cheery note, while I detect this edgy need for, you know, an alcoholic beverage in your voice, Liza. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> I'm, hand. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. Gotta go have that. I, 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 like, I went over, I gathered all of the winners. You're very good. I, I took their photo. And then all of the photographers were still taking photos, and I went and I gathered my bag and I ran up here as fast as I could because Thank you I was much. already ten minutes late, I think. So. <laughs> we will we talk again. We will. Okay. And on that happy okay. note, I think I'm going to wind up episode 53 of the Cood Street Podcast and say thank you, Liza Trombi. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank Thanks you, Gary. You.
Oh, and thank you, Jonathan. This okay. is silly. We're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, uh, <laughs> and we're at bye. Okay, we're done.